Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, is Adam Pawatic. We're recording live here at Real Reit with cameras as part of the speaker video series. Don't forget, stay tuned. Of course, Aaron and I will do our after show to share our thoughts on the episode. And thanks to Yardi for sponsoring this podcast. Our guest today, a gentleman by the name of Don White, who is the president and CEO of Private Pension Partners and Apartment Plus REIT. Don, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, guys. So Don, you know, I don't know much about either of these entities. So this is going to be a fun conversation. And I mean, for the magic of this conversation is that Adam and I basically don't know you, don't know anything about your business. Yeah. We typically do like a debrief for a pre-brief before we go live. But this yeah. time we were kind of like, you know what? Let's just try this out. Yeah. So <laughs> Don's so, pretty relaxed. Yeah. So, so we thought, not? okay, you know where to go. So yes. for the listeners, this is, um, you're going to explore really honestly as we explore. So well, for total transparency, Don and I did have a coffee about five years ago in Winnipeg. Yeah. So there is that yeah. foundation. Oh. But uh, Oh, I did hear you're a Winnipeg yeah. guy. That's right. Some yeah. of, a friend of mine was telling me that. Works at a company that I don't want to mention online. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don, so you've listened to some of these episodes. So we yeah. like to go back first. So let's just tell us about your background. How'd you get into real estate and how'd you end up you know, where you are today? Yeah, sure. Absolutely, guys. Thanks very much for having me. My background is all Winnipeg. Come from a family of four boys, played lots of hockey, grew up there, went to U of M, University of Manitoba. My dad was an accountant. So I thought I should be an accountant. Joined up, went to business school there, asked for school of business. During that time, uh, needed to make some extra money and found a bartending job and quickly learned the world of contingency-based income. And so I quickly pivoted from being a, a bartender and wanting to be an accountant into the commercial real estate world. So after graduation, I did my master's degree in accounting. So strong finance, accounting background. And in June of 94, I started with Colliers International as an investment broker. So that's where knew Adam and others in the past. So uh, I actually ha- held that role selling investment properties for 27 years up until last year. And during that time, specialized mostly in apartments and strip retail investment sales. You know, learned how to make other people money. And back in uh, the height of the financial crisis in 08, really thought that what was important to me was to you know start trying to build my own balance sheet. And so the idea of private pension partners was born. You know, private. We all, my original partners, we all needed our jobs, our day jobs. So my day job was that of an investment broker. Pension, we wanted to invest in pension-grade real estate. And third, partners. We needed partners to do it. You know, we had some savings as a family. And so the private pension partners was born. Our first equity raise was in January of 2010. So that's when the company was formalized. We raised $3 million blindly from friends and family. Wow. And off we That's went. Well done. For a first offering, blind's uh, usually a tougher sell. So yeah. good for you. For yeah. Getting yeah. That, that was tough. The <laughs> brokerage, my brokerage career certainly, uh, you know, taught me a lot about what people wanted in terms of, you know, distributable cash flow, long-term investments in the alt space. You saw in 08, the, you know, amount of money that was being printed by the government in the U.S. And so clearly, and Canada, so you clearly thought inflation might uh, rear its head. The pandemic has obviously exaggerated that. Early on, I also went on did my CFA, my uh, you know CGA, and so I was always heavy finance. Always liked apartments. I liked apartments because of the diversity of the income. You know, in a twenty million dollar building, you can have a hundred tenants. In a twenty million dollar shopping center, you might have ten. So always liked apartments. Started so our focus was there early on. You know, the housing gap. Uh, was pretty evident back then as well. So we quickly went from renovating to building new. And 
early on, I told our investors, I needed your money for 10 years because I wanted to build a portfolio. I didn't mm-hmm. want to do a bunch of one-off. We didn't want to do a bunch of one-off limited partnerships. Wanted to build a portfolio. So we came up with this principle of 10 to build, 10 to earn. And so I needed your money for 10 years. We needed your money for 10 years to build the portfolio. And then we would convert it into a private REIT. And so that's what Apartment Plus REIT is today. It has about 400 million predominantly new apartments in it. The average age of our portfolio is about 3.8 years. And so we, you know, our core business is Apartment Plus REIT. There's 28 buildings in it. Average age is about 3.8 years. The plus stands for a splattering of commercial. We like street front, strip, you know, sort of commercial tactical space. Keeps us engaged in the communities. We see what types of commercial tenants are floating around. There's a bit of an arbitrage play Mm. on the debt between the residential and the commercial. And then we have a series of feeder funds. So we've got about uh, 350 million under construction. All of our properties in Winnipeg, we're certainly on a national growth campaign right now, but Winnipeg's been an incredible base. And to make a long story short, privately, we've raised about $200 million of capital over that 12 and a half years. And so our business is growing and certainly looking to kind of expand out of that high net worth, smaller institutional account world, and, and certainly pursuing some larger institutional partners to help fuel the growth of our business. So that's kind of how we arrived to here today. Worth the flight from Winnipeg to uh, come to Real Read. Yeah, you know, I was at the apartment conference yesterday as well. And, you know, the reality is these uh, conferences and, and these types of discussions, I think they're really important to help explore the ideas and the realities of what's happening in both the commercial real estate world and the residential real estate world, because it's still very much an industry that I think it's in its infancy. A lot of people don't Mm -hmm. understand it. They don't understand the ins and outs. You know, not everybody makes a ton of money in real estate all the time. It's very cyclical as we're hearing today again. So I think these conferences are, uh, it's great to collaborate. It's a great industry. There's amazing people in it. The men and women in this industry are only going to make it better in the coming years. So we're excited about future growth. It is interesting to think about, I mean, apartments in particular, but real estate at large, very slow moving. Mm -hmm. And we had the pleasure of interviewing Phil Frazier yesterday from Mm -hmm. Killam Reed, right? Who started founding Killam Reed as a public entity. I'll go there next. So that's an interesting line of questioning. But, you know, him talking about when he started, you know, he's now an institution, still, you know, he's public, but he was the first one to really kind of say, wait a minute, I could own apartments en masse in at least Atlantic Canada and and Boardwalk was doing it out West. And there's some other players like, you know, Capri, et cetera. That was 25 years ago, 20 years ago, like early 2000s when he really started amassing, you know, institutionalized apartment ownership. Fast forward to 2022. And I still feel like there's a lot of the community still wrapping their heads around that we're no longer a whole bunch of small private little institutions. We're a major, we're owned, we're operated, we're run. Our community is a whole bunch of institutions now. And I think there's a lot of components of our ancillary community, whether they be regulators or their policymakers, you know, et cetera, that don't necessarily understand that. Hold that. We'll go there later, Don. First, why take it public. When you're going through this exercise of, okay, I'm going to go get some seed funding, you raise $3 million from friends and family. You got this sort of, you said 10 build, 10 hold, right? So 10 to build, 10 to earn. 10 to build, 10 to earn. But why convert it into a REIT? Why not do it in another entity? Yeah, and to be very clear, we're a private REIT. And I have I have no interest in the public. Okay, yeah, fair. So yeah, I, I, I have no interest and, in taking public at this stage. And what was the is there tax implications? Let's just talk that through versus yeah. LPs versus just, you know, ownership shares. What yeah. was the logic behind having the private REIT? Yeah, fabulous question. You know, over my tenure as a investment broker, you often saw situations where properties and a lot of apartments were held this way. They were held in limited partnerships where the GP and the LPs had what I would say are very poor co-ownership agreements or limited partnership agreements. Those situations, a lot of investors found themselves locked out from liquidity. And they found themselves locked out from liquidity because the very definition of a limited partnership is you have no risk, but you have no say in the management. So the transition from a limited partnership to a REIT 
you know, in effect, when we did that, we still have influence of the vehicle, but you create an independent board of trustees who do a lot of things. They approve your NAV, they approve acquisitions, dispositions, they approve budgets. So when we made that move, we've got an incredible independent board of trustees. I'm a trustee, but I'm a non-voting trustee. So what you're basically doing is you're, we took three LPs, we smashed them into one private rate, elevated into a vehicle, and then you create a structure that still a lot of people need to learn more about, but it's far better than a limited partnership because you create distribution policies, create redemption rights. You create channels for voicing discourse or disapproval through the independent trustees. So the REIT vehicle, publicly or privately, it has much more control and structure around it, which we believe as a management team long-term is going to make the product more accepted into the retail market. Why not just do an open or closed-ended fund? Don't you get similar benefits than a GPLP? It could be, but I I believe, and like the conference we're at today, I believe that the REIT structure is something that is going to continue to grow and grow. And I think that it's easier to understand. I think your investment pool understands it more. So for example, investment advisors, A plus REIT is an approved product on the shelf of both Richardson Wealth and Align Capital Partners, uh, both being IROC firms. So A lot of the retail advisors, the investment advisors, they far better understand a REIT structure. It's easier for them to understand because many of them might have their clients in a public REIT. Our private REIT structure is exactly the same as a public REIT. And is that by regulation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So it's just not publicly traded. It's It's just not listed. So it's an understanding sort of perspective. And so our view is that long-term, it's going to be easier to digest in the retail. So in theory, easier to attract capital. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Uh, you mentioned one of the benefits being uh, the ability to voice discord. Does that include voting rights of the REIT unit holders? Yeah, absolutely. They have a say and they have direct access to people outside of management. You know, we've been very fortunate in our 12 years. We've only had one redemption request and that was a fund that just couldn't hold it anymore because they were acquired by somebody. But normally in these situations, being private, raising that, you know, first three million, not only, you know, do you have incredibly deep fiduciary responsibilities, but not everybody's always happy. And when they, you know, they might, I don't, they might, we paint a building blue and they might think it should be brown. I mean, it's a little even things like that. Now it never goes anywhere, but if someone ever was really unhappy about an investment decision, it's nice having independence to be able to hear those questions and concerns. And although, again, we've never had an issue with our investor base, it is interesting to see. We do have investors. Last week, we had one of our investors, pretty big investor, call one of our trustees, wanted to understand what IFRS was. Didn't, you know, it was a physician. Didn't really understand why we were spending money on you know, these audited statements, you know, why did we need to do that? Wasn't that a waste of money? And so it's nice to have some (laughs) independence where we don't have to address questions like that. We're happy too, but it's nice when there's uh, some independence there. This might be a stupid question, but going to caveat that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a investor and I've got a a bunch of money and I want to go and buy 20% of your shares Mm-hmm. When I'm and it's publicly traded, I just kind of go and make that or try to make that acquisition yep. if I can find the shares privately. Though there's an approval process. Like, how does that work? Like, if I show up and I want to give you 200 yep. million or whatever, a, a significant chunk. I don't know yep. the numbers that actually add up to your yep. business. But. I would qualify this lead before continuing the <laughs> yeah. conversation, but, <laughs> but maybe, yeah. maybe he has 200 million. No, I do not. Okay. I guarantee I do not. I take a mil. But you know what I mean, right? Like yeah. if someone shows up and they want to be almost in an arbitrage or not arbitrage, almost in like an aggressive way. Like yeah. I want to, I want to get in. I want to take over, and I yeah. want to have, I want to have more control over it. Can you just say no? Yeah, absolutely. Being private, like. 
Like, how does yeah. that work? What does that yeah. mechanism look like? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, when you raise money privately, what most people like we did, you use an exemption. It's an offering exemption. And basically, as long as you're not in the market raising money continuously, you can use what is called an offering memorandum exemption. And so that allows, as long as you register those documents with the relevant Securities Commission, that allows you to go out and raise money on an infrequent basis to build private platforms. You've got to talk to you know, people about all the risks, so on and so forth. So from day one, our offering memorandum has looked like a publicly traded offering memorandum. So early on during growth, people would come in, they would have to be accredited. You know, we would have to make sure, do reasonable tests to make sure it was suitable. And as our business grew, we certainly were not raising money occasionally. We were raising money all the time. And so right now, one of the verticals in our business, we have our asset management group that looks after the REIT. We have our development group that looks after our developments. They're held in what we call feeder funds. It's a core plus strategy, but the stabilized assets are held outside of the development assets. We also have our exempt market dealer license. So our EMD license allows us to raise money on a continuous basis. And when you have your exempt market dealer license, you complete, you know, we still have to deal with accredited investors, but, you know, know your client forms, suitability tests, and all the rest of it. So if you came to us and said, I look, we have 10 million, we'd like to invest. We would look at you and say, are you an investor we want? Are you a scalable investor? Are you a good person? What do you add? I mean, we have architects who are investors, lawyers, and it's, it's not a business club, but certainly we've got some smart real estate people, men and women in our group. And if we think you're a suitable investor, we'll accept your capital. Right now, it's very widely held. There's four owners of the private pension partners business. We're also all significant investors in the REIT. So we have alignment. We have significant investments. So yeah, it is a bit of a private club. um, And that control is nice because you make sure that a, most importantly, it has to be a suitable investment. It's not publicly traded. You know, we have liquidity through the structure, but this is really an alternative investment. Should be seven to 15% 15% of your portfolio in direct and private real estate. Mm-hmm. Some people have it all with us. Some have a few different vehicles, but yeah. it's certainly a growth part of it. It protects you from some sort of hostility. Yeah. Which was really what I was getting at. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the capital raising. As you mentioned uh, in 2010, yeah. going to friends and family, getting the first 3 million. That was probably you know, a tougher slog to get that going. But you talk about capital raising over the last, you know, 12 years, the highs and the lows, when it's been easier, when it's a bit more of a headache. You know, know, it's always hard. You know, I'd be, I wouldn't be being truthful. It's a constant part of my day. I don't lose sleep over it because ultimately alignment, performance, and track record, you know, it will keep it growing. And as I said earlier, A plus REIT, Apartment Plus being approved product on Richardson Wealth shelf and Align Capital Partner shelf. They've been tremendous partners so far. The pandemic, gents, no question. I mean, when you couldn't see anybody and meet anybody, we have to deal with accredited investors. Minimum investment in our vehicle in A-plus read is 25000 That's not the most difficult part. The most difficult part in Canada is finding accredited investors. Because and just for those who don't know, can you define accredited? Yeah, investor? there's a, there's a lit- you're not one. Adam, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I think Adam is. <laughs> I think it's an income and net worth yeah, test. It's an income and a net worth yeah. test, and so you, you know, as a family, you got to make more than two hundred thousand a year, or you have to have more than a million of investable assets, excluding house and cottage. So again, those are not insignificant thresholds for people. And eventually what happens to all companies like ours, you know, the friends and family list, they start, it starts dwindling down pretty quick. As as much as I think we're all personal people, we all only have time for so many. Only only so many barbecues. So that was really the, the transition to, you know, partnering with some IROC firms and going down that 
retail path getting to their advisors. So our exempt market dealer license, just to tie this together, what that allows us to do is compensate partners and advisors where in effect they're becoming our partner again, because we're now relying on their capital to help fuel the growth of the business. And so, you know, with seven, roughly 750 million, either in the stabilized REIT or under development, Winnipeg's been an incredible market. I'm sure you've seen the slides the last couple of days. It's very stable. The economy is very diversified. You know, our apartment portfolio is effectively full and has been for some time now. The fundamentals of apartments, again, very strong right now for reasons I'm sure we'll talk a bit about. But even with that, raising capital in Canada is hard. The big banks control a lot of it. You've seen shifts in the big banks where you're only now allowed to buy their approved product. The securities commissions are stringent, and there's been too many examples of some private entities, high-profile private entities that have failed, and a lot of people have lost money. So I'm not at all being critical about the rules. They need to be there, and we follow them. But it is hard for private capital, once you kind of get into our size, to sort of break through that you know, 500 to a billion scale of real estate assets and try to move it to the next level. So that's kind of where we're at in the cycle. What about the turbulence, you know, that started in real estate? And well, Aaron and I are very interest rate focused, but March is kind of when things went, uh, you know, a little sideways in real estate. Has it been more difficult March to present at a timestamp that we're currently sitting September 2022? Has the market turbulence made it tougher to raise capital in the very recent past? No, I'd actually suggest that it's probably making it easier to raise capital because the equity markets are so volatile. And again, alternatives and investments in private direct real estate, it should not be the majority of your portfolio. It should just be an allocation. And right now, a lot of people don't have that allocation. So the inflation, two things. One, the inflation hedge that real estate provides, you know, rising interest rates and inflation, if you're long real estate already, it's a pretty good thing. So, you know, that's been a supporter. The volatility of the equity markets has certainly been an issue for them, but for private, you know, we just, we're not marked to market every day and, and our apartment values, they probably still are going up, not because of necessarily changes in cap rates, but probably because a betterment of income. Half of our portfolios in rent controls, half of it is not. Even though the majority of our buildings are new, the new CMHC lending programs, as you guys know, if you tie into the flex and whatnot, you're subject to the rent controls of your market. Yeah. And we have rent controls in Manitoba. So about half of our portfolio, although we have extremely attractive debt on the entire portfolio, it is subject to rent controls. So this volatility, I think we're certainly watching it very closely. And it really depends on how high interest rates go and how long they stay there. So how many units right now? 1,100 units. 1,100 units. And what, what would be the 2025 target? I'll just pick a random date in the future. At you, least 5,000. So a major growth. And that's through predominantly development or development and acquisition? A development and acquisition of IPP. And, and expanding geographically. Absolutely. And yeah. so what does that look like out of Winnipeg? Well, again, in Winnipeg, within two and a half years, we'll have... 750, 800 million of predominantly apartments. Again, extremely stable market, great place to build a business, build that track record, build a team. We have just under 30 people on our team now, very highly educated, very diverse, lots of CAs, few CFAs, Yeah, just a really strong team. Really for us, what it looks like right now, our targets are Alberta. We like Edmonton, we like Calgary, we like Southern Ontario. And we also, so we like those geographies, but we'd also really like to find, we're not afraid to do partial interest. So if someone came to us and, you know, you were brothers and one of you wanted to sell and move to Hawaii and one of you wanted to stick around and run the business, you know, we're really creative. And that's the partners in the sort of the broader umbrella of private pension partners. I'm not afraid to buy a half interest in a really good portfolio in Toronto. 
And I think we will see some windows of opportunity here and in other markets as, you know, inflation really erodes profit. Reinvestment is required to push rents. And so I think there will be private family. And again, the move of private interests into sort of more institutional and easier to understand retail real estate product like private REITs. That's really what we're chasing. We've got only a couple of minutes left. Yeah. So let's pivot to sort of apartment fundamentals. Sure. We kind of teased it earlier just about the challenges we're facing across the country. You mm-hmm. know, and this has been interesting. You know, Adam and I've been doing this for five years and we've kind of had this conversation fairly frequently. Yep. And you know, let's focus in on affordability as the main issue. There used to be a debate whether it was supply or demand. Now we know it's both, right? Really. There's a yep. lack of supply and there's an increase in demand. It's both. Yep. Yep. And it used to be, you know, there's no real easy solution, right? And you could talk about, you know, lack of supply. You could talk about the increased immigration demand. You could talk about the cost to build. You could talk about rising interest rates. All these things that are fairly out of our control. One of the few things that is in our control is the time to delivery of the units. And I found, particularly at this conference, right, we had the Canadian Apartment Conference yesterday, and now yep. we've got Real REIT, and I'm sure it's the same message going on. There's been this consensus, this global Canadian community, real estate community consensus that really we need to get our partners in the policymakers that to get timelines faster to allow us to deliver because it's no longer a Toronto issue. In Toronto, it used to be we were always. You know, I talked to our friends in Edmonton. Yeah. They're like, "Oh, I can get you know acquisition to shovel ready to delivery in yeah. eighteen months," and we'd be like, "Oh, it's three years in Toronto." Now it feels like it's three years everywhere. Yeah. And so there's this now. There's this great consensus. Before we went live, you talked about just you know getting better alignment with our policymakers, our yeah. municipal friends, and just what that looks like. So maybe just talk through what you've been doing from an activist, you, maybe to use a bad word, yeah, know, perspective. Look, well, this is a great business. And, you know, First National, there are so many moving parts to this business that at a very high level. We need better collaboration in the industry. We need the decision makers. Again, there's, there's no point to sit here and bash rent controls. I mean, it's a, the topic's in vogue. It's very political. And the apartment business, the regulatory part of it, is difficult because there aren't very many businesses in Canada where your revenue is controlled. So, you know, we got to bust through this. And I think how we bust through it is by making sure people in government understand at all levels of government that there are a number of things we can do. One, let's have an open discussion on rent controls and, and what they do. Unfortunately, in my opinion, they benefit the privileged. Because not everybody, contrary to what the government might tell you and the banks might tell you, not everybody in Canada wants to own a home. Like that is not everybody's dream. Housing, as we all know, is a huge part of GDP in this country, way more on a percentage basis than most. It's an industry. So we got to have frank discussions that, you know, the wealthy people who have great jobs and know their friends who own apartment buildings, they tuck them into buildings and they never leave. That doesn't help those that really need rentals. The other thing that it benefits the privileged buy is if you own apartments and cap rates are two and a half to four and a half percent across the country, you know, that's far different than the nine, 10 percent they were at when I started selling them. And so you've also seen a lot of people make a lot of capital appreciation on them now. So there's other challenges. So we got to get together. We got to start collaborating between government, understanding policy, even government understanding things they could do in the wage and in the employment sector. Why not start offering grants or tax credits for people who start undertaking trades programs? Immigration, why not focus on those from other countries who want to immigrate who have a a skill or a trade, carpentry, electricians, things like that. So we can start working there, working with the cities to make them understand and try to streamline those processes. Maybe you do it by scale of project. You know, maybe it's a hundred suites or bigger, that gets more priority than a 12-suite or apartment you want to build because it takes the same processing time. Lots of things we can do. And then lenders, 
just like your firm. I mean, all the lenders, you know, the service providers, they do a great job explaining the products that CMHC has. And, you know, a lot of people try to use 50-year AMs to justify higher values, and that's fine to justify a purchase. But really, the products that are available through firms like yours, the CMHC, they also have a big role to play in this because if we can streamline some of those approval processes to, you know, de-risk some of the transactions for the private investor and developer like us, then we will activate ourselves and we'll be able to figure out interest rates and higher costs. I mean, interest rates are, you know, when I started in this industry, you can borrow it anything less than probably nine or 10%. So these interest rates are still cheap. We can still produce a product, but we have to stop going at each other. Well, that's where I was kind of going is, you know, the interest rates you can't control. It is, it is what it yeah. is, right? The inflation is just the reality of what, the cycle we live in, right? right? It is what it is. Costs, I mean, again, it, that's just a that's a commodity-based you know, global phenomenon that, again, you have zero control over. And with the affordability challenges and the housing, you know, call it a crisis, I think it is. It is crisis. Throughout the country, one of the biggest things that we still have a problem is is, is delivery, right? Is getting these units online. And, and that's because it takes so long to get these things through the regulatory approval process, right? Like it's, yeah. and, and that is controllable. And I feel like our community is really focusing in on that. So if you work for a city somewhere across the country and you have an opportunity to just expedite the process for approvals yeah. to yeah. allow us to get yeah. more units yeah. into the lives of Canadians, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Don, have you ever had a chance to advocate to anybody in any level of government? Yeah, we do it all the time. Uh, You know, and nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard. You know, when cities set, you know, sort of direction that they want through, you know, Winnipeg, we have something called Plan Winnipeg. It was written by some very, very smart architects and civic employees, just the direction they wanted to go. This area, there was no infill. This area, we support infill. This area, we support infill of not more than this many stories. Like, this is a very comprehensive, very intelligent plan. We have a development site on Shaftesbury. This is very public, so I don't mind talking about it in a public forum like this. We have approval from the city at every level supported by the planner to build 58 luxury apartment units. It's an infill site near a golf course, near a park. It's an absolutely beautiful infill development site supported by many area residents. We have about 30 of the neighbors who have now appealed the decision to the municipal board. And this project could be at risk because people don't want multi-tenant properties in their neighborhood. Now, that to me is completely against the plan that the city put forward for growth. So the other thing that friends in uh, City Hall and having those discussions, Adam, with many people, we advocate for change and growth when it's already supported by the city and already supported by the policy in place. So the other thing that I think government has to start doing is being a little bit firmer with people about the importance of a growing city. You know, that project is probably a $30 million project that will probably feed 30 families for a year and a half. So it's good for GDP. It allows people who live in the neighborhood to age in place. Maybe they sell their house to their kids. Maybe they sell it to some other family who wants to move into this wonderful neighborhood. So many benefits of it, but it just, nimbyism is a big, big issue in this country too. Social media makes it worse because it's easy to rally the troops, so to speak. So it real estate, it gets attacked at a lot of angles. And I think people just don't understand the importance of it and what it does for our economy and for our lives. Uh, newspapers just love bashing oh, lawyers over We were just Sunday talking, first. we just finished uh, recording our uh, our after show on another yeah. topic with Dean Holmes from Quadrio yesterday. Yeah. And we were just talking about the negative connotation of the Lord of the land, yeah. right? the landlords, and just yeah. how that <laughs> we need to get rid of that term. Please, yeah, we need, we need everybody stop using landlord. Yeah. And we've had Chris Spoke, who is, uh, we've had him multiple times on here, who's an advocate for Yimbyism. And his whole thing, I mean, in a nutshell, is yeah, there might be 30 residents that don't want it there, but who represents the 72 residents that would have lived in that building or would? 
Correct. live in that building in the future. So yeah. Correct. No there's, voice no, for them. there's no voice for them. And that's the problem with the system and where the politicians have to stand up and go, yeah, I know you live here today, but I have to represent all of my constituents who may be future constituents who would actually yeah. be res- residents here in the future, right? Well, so. I don't know, you know, the, the analogy I give everybody, you know, it's kind of like you're going on a vacation with your family and your young family and you're, uh, you're going to Banff and this is how you're getting there and this is where you're going. And you got a plan. Like everybody agrees to it. It's a plan. And then you leave the driveway and your son says, I want to go to Ottawa. Well, uh, that's not the plan. And, and that's what these like plan Winnipeg and they exist in every major jurisdiction. That's where these very smart men and women have sat down and designed the growth of their city. The politicians who get brought into these approval processes, they need to do a better job standing up and quickly lopping this stuff off at the knees, assuming the building meets the structural quality, the integrity, the design, and all the rules that were set forth. So we did that exactly, approval all the way through the city, through every city department. No one from the city said they wanted the land or needed it for something else. And just because of you know, 30 or a handful f- of residents. Yeah. Who just, yeah. And they're entitled to their opinion. No, I right? get that. No, they're it, entitled, it, but it's, that, it is, that slows it is, down the industry. No, and that's, it is, so the what's the status now then of the project? Are you, uh, or it's under appeal still. It is. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it's under appeal still. No, that will be three and a half years and then we still have to design it. So that, in Winnipeg, it normally takes a couple of years to entitle, again, from acquisition to shovel. Yeah. It normally takes a few years. This one could be four years. Yeah. And nobody cares about the lost opportunity cost of the capital that we bought the land on. And this gets back to my collaboration at that point, is that if residents would slow down and understand the benefit of an infill project like this, and many do, and it's just really sad sometimes that that small minority disrupts real estate development and supply so much so often. Yeah. That's my issue. No, it's, I mean, if you have, you know, whatever it is, 35, 40 million Canadians, and there might be a couple hundred thousand that are really active NIMBYs across right. the country, but yet they're the ones that are, they have unfortunately had a disproportionate influence on the affordability crisis we come, we have in this right. country. And if, and it's if just they, amazing. Right. And if they know more about this supply crisis that we're in, maybe they would just soften up a bit and understand yeah. this country needs houses. If you're a, um, if you're a journalist out there, and you'd like to write an article about the benefits of development, that would be great. Yep. Please and thank you. Call us. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Don, we are out of time today, but I want to thank you for spending, you know, spending this time with us at the conference. I yep. know you've got a panel as well to worry about today. So you've got a lot going on. We appreciated the hour. We want to thank, of course, Granite Reit for sponsoring this episode of the speaker video series. And of course, to First National Empowering the Podcast. Right thanks, guys. Thanks yeah, for having me. Thanks for having me. on. Appreciate great conversation. It. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we digest or discuss the conversation we just had. Private pension partners and Apartment Plus. I um, had never, I did not have much familiarity with them. Now I do. Great individual. Clearly very smart man. And 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 a really interesting sort of structure. Like, I don't know about you, but I've not really come across that dynamic of a ownership philosophy. Yeah, I, I don't actually think that we meant to do that much of a deep dive on the structure that he's picked for his investment vehicle. Uh, but it was interesting, right? Because, yeah, you do not encounter that every day by, by any stretch. It was probably why we both keed in on it and ended up spending 20 minutes on it when maybe we're only planning on spending <laughs> we're The only two people on earth that really found that really fascinating. But... Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> if you haven't yeah. picked up, ownership structures are very important to lenders because we need to require recourse. Yeah. And only the only way to capture recourse is to have a full understanding yeah. of what the ownership structure looks like in the first place. So unfortunately, Adam and I spend a disproportionate amount of our time <laughs> trying to figure out who owns what and then trying to wrap our arms around it for our security. So when he starts talking about ownership structures that are unique, <laughs> for some reason, we find that interesting. Well, I think uh, if, maybe, maybe the timeline is a little wrong, but it sounds like he did you know, go from the raising money from friends and family into that, into that structure very quickly. So, well, I would, it sounded like that was from day one. That yeah. was kind of his, his this, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise it. I'm going to have these private funds. I'm going to have this LPGP that's going to fold into… Smash them together as he described them, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, for anybody else out there, I mean, you don't need to have $750 million in assets before you contemplate something like this. Like, it clearly works if you're, if you're out there… At barbecues, hitting up friends and family to get a couple million bucks to get going right now. You know, maybe maybe pay attention to what he's saying and doing. I, you know, I find this interesting. So we had Phil Fraser on uh, yesterday as part of the Canadian Department of Investment Conference, where uh, he was you know, from day one public REIT. Like it was that was the plan. He raised his initial capital through some sort of subsidy through the Alberta federal provincial government in order to go public for his REIT. Uh, then you've got Don today who wanted to have the REIT structure because of he liked the, I think he just liked the, the, the control, the consistency, the, the ease of understanding what it is as he was talking about the, the iBankers kind of get REITs and there's a lot of controls and regulations in place that just make it transparent to your private owners or public owners, depending on what you want to do. And then there are others. We just ran into a, a, a one guest, Rohit Gupta, who we did back in Edmonton, where he's just like, I'd never in a million yeah. years would I ever. He's at the real reconference. <laughs> yeah. So Aaron uh, did ask the question. Yeah. He's he was like, absolutely not. Yeah. Why would I ever put myself through that challenge, right? Of, of all of the requirements and restrictions on, on that, that, that structure. So I mean, my point is, there's no right way. There's yes. lots and lots and lots of different ways to do it. I think they all have their merits. They all have their benefits. Tax implications, which of course goes way over my head. Talk to your accountant. Yeah, uh, but uh, there's no right way. There's just lots of different ways. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, I mean, you know, it clear, it's clearly worked for him. I mean, that's a, that's a decent-sized portfolio and, and growing. You know, if he can hit that growth target, he's uh, earmarked for, I think 2025 is the year you pegged. Yeah, well, yeah. you said 5,000 by 2025. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was official, but, but I mean, I think the point was more. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> more, not less. The other thing that I thought was interesting was just his, his passion for alignment with all of our, all the partners within the, within the, I mean, the, the macro apartment industry, you know, just, he talked about the, the benefits of immigration, talked about the need for alignment between all different layers of governments, and he's bang on, right? I mean, there is just a bit of a disconnect. And we kind of talked about it offline before we went live, just about how there seems to just still be some misunderstanding about what the apartment community is trying to do versus what you know uh, policymakers seem to want and need. We didn't get into it on the on the vacancy control, but I have, the, I have this really big fear that with the rapid growth in population because of the federal government and their immigration policies, which coming, right? Whatever it is, it was supposed to be 400,000 a couple of years ago. They've now increased that, I think, on an annual basis yeah, just to catch up, right? So like, talk about 500,000 people a year, which is, which is nuts over the next four or five years. We did talk about how the cities are not allowing us to build very much just because of how slow they are. And then, of course, even if they were really quick, I think right now, because interest rates and the cost of things, we're not building anyway, even if it was really quick to get through cities. We can talk about zoning and entitlement challenges. There's so many headwinds going on from the supply side. So there's a demand side going up, supply side being flat. The costs are already skyrocketing across the across the country. Like we're, I mean, in Toronto, like literally almost it feels like on a daily basis, I'm hearing about new high watermarks on what we're achieving on new rents for new bills, right? Like it's just, it's, it's going up incrementally. I have a really big fear that in six to 12 months from now, we'll have still 
rampant demand, still no supply. Rents are going to get to a point where like it's eye popping, like just like, wow, that makes no sense that people are paying that for units. And then it'd be really easy for policymakers, municipalities around the country to go, you know what? Vacancy control. Yeah, because it's not, it's not like it hasn't been here in the past. And it's, it's uh, been, I hear whispers in Vancouver. I've heard whispers in Toronto that yeah. it, it has popped up into conversations, not official sort of city council votes, but just conversations. And it'd be a real easy one for municipalities to go, you know what? Here's a solution. Hey, you know, community, this is the way we're going to solve this problem. We're just going to slap on vacancy control. And once it's in, so hard to get rid of it. Oh, it would be, it would be politically, it would be really unpalatable. And then, so, okay, great. Vacancy control while we're in this, this crazy moment of crazy demand, low supply. We'll get out of the, presumably the coming recession. Things will normalize. We'll get back into a new cadence and we'll be in a world where there's vacancy control. And then nothing gets built. Yeah, that that would be the the biggest headline, and not because yeah. it's too expensive, or not because the costs are out of control, not because interest rates make it challenging, but because there's literally no yield in it. No, and it, with with uh, cost escalations we've had over the last handful of years, if you put full vacancy control yeah, right. in, it's. It, I hope I'm wrong, but I just I have this really big I, fear that we've yeah. just set this perfect storm up where we're going to end up in a world where six dollar per square foot or eight dollar per square foot rents is not extraordinary because of just the simple supply and demand economics. And then the policymakers go, I've got a great idea. And, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> well, I, I hope I'm wrong. So ending on a sour note. Again. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. yeah. See you on the next one, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.